Welcome back to Mark's Madness. Oh, yeah. We are back. We are doing it again. We're doing it again. Welcome back to Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name is David. And this week, we are going to be taking us back to uh, our work, current work, Blood in My Eye by George Jackson. Uh, but before we do that, as is our want, we're going to touch on current events. Uh, spoiler alert, it's been one day since we recorded last. <laughs> and yet there is still an event of enough magnitude that it is important for us to comment on it. So, yeah, thought we were going to skate by on this one, but no, no, we are yeah, not. Yeah, yeah, just never, ever, ever. Never, never ends, baby. Never. Never ends. Yeah, so Shareem Abu Akhla was a um, Arab, um, It was the Arab, she was an Arabic language specialist or whatever for Al Jazeera, I guess she was, or Arabic language uh, reporter mm-hmm. for Al Jazeera, uh, that was on the scene. What was happening was Israel was raiding a Palestinian refugee camp, which is just abhorrent, right? And there's a certain there's a certain pretext where you know killing journalists is really really bad, right? They're they're civilians. Um, it's also a way of trying to cover things up, um, and it does kind of both in one act. But it also gets put on this pedestal uh, above other cover-ups of war crimes and civilian harm. And I don't know if it deserves an extra pedestal. But in spite of how that happens too often, it's still something that's, of course, really grotesque. And then on top of that, kind of the buried lead is Israel was raiding a Palestinian refugee camp. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, just very, very fucked up, tragic shit. I think it was was it 10 people were killed or I, I believe it was 10 to 12 was was the number I, numbers. I keep yeah. Saying. So, I mean, again, you know, horrend- horrendously tra- uh, tragic event where once again, Israel is coming down on Palestinians as a violent colonial apartheid force. And as always, you know, we have to, to, to lend our support to Palestinians and push back on, on the, the pro-Israel narratives out there because it's a very, very powerful U.S. puppet, right? I mean, everything starts at the center of the empire. We, mm-hmm. we have to fight the empire. I'm plain and simple. Yep. Amen. Um, I guess that's that's... My only input, I'd like to have more on it because it's a big deal, um, but really just that it is an enormous deal. It lends to Israel cover things up. They did have, they did put out some bullshit, like spokesperson was like, oh, there was some terrorist attacks and we were lunged at with knives or something and we're going to investigate how she got shot. And But there's videos out there and they were raiding a refugee camp. It's it, it, it's a bunch of shit, right? Exactly. Um, and then other than cutting through that... Um, basically the exceptionalism of journalists being killed, which there's good reason it's put on a pedestal, but it's also put on a higher pedestal than other civilians and and things like that, which it really shouldn't be. And the fact that the buried lead is that Israel raided a refugee camp and killed 10 to 12 people. So, Uh, and it again, in one day after the mass mass leads of current events. So it just, yeah, I mean, the the world is, is fucking turning at lightning speed right now. Yeah, it's getting it's getting ridiculous. Um, that being said, with our after our brief touch on current events, we will be jumping back in on page seventy one, uh, second paragraph down on page seventy one. In follow this this is following the long Huey Newton quote uh, from last week on strategy and and how and survival programs within the party. 
In following this strategy, we at once fill a very real vacuum that already exists in the black colony, brown and poor white too, where the people are not being fed, clothed, provided with adequate medical treatment or transportation facilities. This will create the consciousness that comes from the introduction of people's government. It will help the people to understand the force of and energy of revolution. We are organizing them around their needs. We will not distract them with such empty questions as who will be elected from which political party. All political parties, as things stand, will support the power complex. Any I really individual- do nope. like. I really do like that sense, right? We will not distract them with such empty questions mm-hmm. as who will be elected to a political party. That's so straightforward. I love it. Any individual elected will either be a supporter of the established politics or an individual. What would help us, in fact, is to allow as many right-wing elements as possible to assume, quote-unquote, political power. The warnings that our thrusts towards self-determination will bring on fascism are irresponsible, or better, unrealistic. The fascists already have power. The point is that some way must be found to expose them and combat them. An electoral choice of 10 different fascists is like choosing which one wishes to die, or which way one wishes to die. The holder of so-called high public office is always merely an extension of the hated ruling corporate class. It is to our benefit that this person be openly hostile, despotic, unreasoning. We now, are- I will... <laughs> Yeah, I I will, you know, point out that there's not necessarily a a party that's more despotic because one of the ways that this gets exposed is of course like right now the the Dems are in office and people are starting to realize, oh, this isn't appreciably different than Republicans. Right? This exactly. is the same as Trump was still there. Um, so, you know, he was clearly making an argument that like, no, I mean, you know, and he's very bold, right? Like we're going to die anyway. They're going to kill us anyway. They're going to treat us the same and have the same policies anyway. You know, show them for what they are. At least make it obvious. Um, mm-hmm. But there's a little bit of an accelerationism in there, and whether yeah. George is right or wrong with that, and I don't, I don't know if I totally agree. But I'm also not here to be like, whoa, whoa, you know, this is black revolutionary or something like that. That's ridiculous. But um, but I am saying in our current times, we at least have some evidence that George didn't have. You don't even have to go this accelerationist route to get that. Democrats expose themselves. Yeah. And that's, that's the only party that has the not openly fascist reputation. Exactly. We are not living in a nation where left-wing parties hold 80 out of 200 seats in a congressional body, or even 8 out of 200. This is a huge nation dominated by the most reactionary and violent ruling class in the history of the world, where the majority of the people just simply cannot understand that they are existing on the misery and discomfort of the world. That last line there, that people just simply cannot Mm -hmm. understand that they are existing on the misery and discomfort of the world is such a huge. So that that's what I want. That's the bare minimum that I want liberals to fucking acknowledge when I get into it with them. Is, yeah, I, but I get it. It it, it, it concede that point. <laughs> I, I I yeah, I understand. And the, the thing is, that's that's part of the tool, right? Put the misery, displace the misery. You know, mm-hmm. don't put news on how everything's suffering, but displace the misery. So now, you know, not only are your official enemies bad, but we know where official enemies come from, and we've harped so hard on how terrible life is there and how good you have it right so when someone else is capitalist or u.s aligned and exposed for being so it's well that's just how things are 
out there and and the the totally not racist colonial you know that's that's just the backwards way to do it and and we've got to give them democracy and shit you know just comes right to the forefront because it's a way it's disconnected they can they can just other it yep they have been hypnotized into believing that criticism of the expansionist policies of imperialism is really isolationist or injurious to both usa and the world another one that never seems to to go away that just stays evergreen Mm -hmm. We are faced with two choices, to continue as we have done for 40 years, fanning our pamphlets against the hurricane, or starting to build a new revolutionary culture that we will be able to turn on the old culture. Collectively, we have that choice. The black colony, as it sits out here alone, has no such choice. In a report from Jonathan Jackson in early 1970, he said, We are not going to wait until the USA attacks the people of the USA, or Angola, Mozambique, or any of the other African nations in Thormont. We can't wait. We shouldn't even allow this thing to happen in Indochina. Bank of America, Chase Manhattan, First National Bank of New York, Irving Trust Company, the Morgan Monopoly, Manufacturers, Hanover Trust, Continental, Continental the Third, I guess, National Bank, First National Bank of Chicago, Bankers Trust Company, and a dozen lesser firms all have great financial interests in the USA now. In 1966, the USA investment in one small African nation was $667 million. It's almost doubled since then in 1968 to 70 to 75% of all goods from the USA entered the USA duty-free. Soon we'll be asked to fight the people of the USA because they'll, they're will they getting their people's army together. No, I'm not waiting for them to attack a new part of Africa or Asia. I'm entering the war now on the side of the Vietnamese. The black colony... The revo- oh, yeah. I was going to say that's uh, uh, very succinct. Um, in, it's an idea that, that combines revolutionary defeatism and anti-imperialism kind of into one out of just necessity and, and simple examination and, and brilliantly put by Jonathan there. Yep. The black colony USA has little choice. We must enter the war on the side of the majority of the world's people, even if it means fighting the USA majority. We fight to live, and we're learning to fight. It'll be a war to the knife if necessary. We can't wait until the generation that thinks of blacks as N-word and the rest of the world as just a bunch. Just imagine all just the slurs, Just a series guys. of ethnic slurs. Just yeah. a series of ethnic slurs. You guess which ones. Has been educated away. It may be the reverse that happens. We hard at uh, slurs may be blown away first, or if we survive, what will we inherit? A desert? We'll mass what people we can. Perhaps that won't be the whole lower class. We'll mass ourselves and, an al- and any ally we may be able to draw from the whole class structure, and we'll attempt to wage a war on property and property rights. Essentially, that is the fight. But even then, some men will die as, all, as in all forms of war. But if we cannot draw the support that is necessary for such a war, then when we then we see a positive benefit for the majority of the world's people in the reduction of this whole country to a vast wasteland and a graveyard for 200 million of the history's most damnable fools. In people's urban in people's war, urban style, each political move toward organizing people around their realistic needs will support a corresponding military move. This unity of politics and war will increase the overall revolutionary consciousness by degrees to a point where mass consciousness can be said to exist. The Black Panther Party is the largest and most powerful political force existing outside establishment politics. It draws this power from the people. It is the people's natural political vanguard. Now, let us assume the existence of a small, tightly knit, totally committed and separate military vanguard such as Jonathan Jackson attempted to build. 
Jonathan was my brother and closest comrade. I knew him. He was the real Super Edward. He worked at it hard. He took complete control of himself. He learned every weapon in the human arsenal from the flying side thrust foot attack and the quick draw snapshot to the manufacture and use of the mortar. He knew 6,000 ways to kill a man, 30 with the simple stroke of an empty hand or foot. He was 17 years old when he died in the service of the people on the side of the black colonies with the courage of the whole colonized world. Let's assume where Jonathan is concerned that our battle cry reaches some receptive ear and another hand reaches down to take up our weapon. We have two perfectly harmonious fists. The left front ram of the Black Panther's political thrust and the left back ram of the August 7th movement. Let's further assume that this nation is one huge city that we can call by its rightful updated name Johannesburg. This clarifies the understanding of urban people's war. The concept of the true internationalism and the connections, interactions, processes, and effects of a people at war under the leadership of a vanguard which wields a double-edged sword against an isolated enemy element. All the cities of this country can be treated as one interconnecting entity due to the necessity of exchange and interactions caused by specialization. We can now deal with them as a single entity because of the national character of the vanguard party and revolutionary consciousness within the inner black colony. All Anglo-Western cities are generally the same when they are reduced to the critical features that support them. I could be talking about London, New York, Chicago, Detroit, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, Paris, Berlin, or Rome instead of Johannesburg. Mao pictured the USA as the city of the world surrounded, besieged and slowly strangled to death by a third force under arms. Using Mao's theoretical springboard, I wish to make further comments upon the hypothetical super-technological city-state and its vulnerability. Any honest... Oh, yeah, go ahead. I I do want to stop. That's a good takeaway. Like, a lot of people would take third-worldism and this idea that Mao, you know, you've got the first world, which is the West, the second world, which at the time was kind of the Soviet and Eastern Bloc, and the third world, which was everyone in the non-aligned movement, the third world would rise up and take power and collapse the West, specifically and especially the United States. And people hear that, and then when they're in the global north, it's like, oh, well, that sounds defeatist. That sounds like, well, that's not my, you know, my forte. Or you could read that, like, is done here, and says, oh, you know, you can think of the United States as kind of this isolated citadel, right? Which makes it generally, you know, generally enforced, um, or not enforced, protected, right, and secured. Um, but that also gives you an idea of the understanding of that security. And so you can use that third world idea to see the United States vulnerability for fighting from the inside out. Yep. You want to go ahead and read, David? Yeah. Uh, Any honest expert in the overall strategy and logistics of classic Western mechanized warfare, the war of the industrially based established state, will admit that scientific guerrilla force must be outnumbered 10 to 1 in manpower by the mechanized force if it is to be contained at all. The establishment army, the defenders of property, of the industrial complex armed with the tools and weapons of heavy industry, must field 10 men just for one guerrilla. This point is a strong indication for the relative effectiveness of the two fighting styles. Recent reports, March of 1971, coming from the Indo-Chinese theater, describe such debacles as 80 USA 40-ton tanks racing in a wild retreat before the guerrillas. Uh, 
Puppet soldiers and USA mercenaries, in their haste to disengage from the people's forces, are lashing themselves into the runners of rescue helicopters. Disaster for the man with the most and best equipment is threatening and imminent. Now is the time for us to fill the streets with our protest. Clog the tunnels and back stairs of covert totalitarian government with every weapon at our disposal. The effectiveness of rallies and mass demonstrations has not come to an end. Their purpose has diacritically altered, but the general tactic remains sound. Today, the rally affords the opportunity to affect intensive organization of the projects and programs that will form the infrastructure of our communes. Again, you know, when you set up these alternative systems, you're not only surviving, which is, you know, first and foremost, and you should be compelled to do anyway, you're building trust to radicalize people and you're setting up the structure for when the revolution takes off so you can support yourself, right? So you can, Mm -hmm. you can defend the revolution and and make it function. Exactly. If the mass rallies close, as they have in the past, with a few speeches and a pamphlet, we can expect no more results than in the past. Two hours later, people will be Americans again, instead of people. But going among the people at each gathering with clipboards and pens, and painfully ascertaining what each can contribute to clear-cut, carefully defined political projects, and the distinction between intensive organization and the sterile, stilted attempts to build new unions, rank-and-file, etc., or elect a socialist legislature. However, as we start the projects that will eventually move the workers and the whole community into open conflict with a ruling clique, my own personal observations lead me to the independent conclusion that the political vanguard and even its early project need to be defended. Clearly, the political cadre needs protection from the enemy culture's military, its secret police, and vigilante death squads. Again, considering when this was written, a lot of COINTELPRO feedback there. Yeah, you know? for sure. Armed and, and learning the lessons of it, which, of course, you know, exactly. that's why we're reading this thing. We need to learn those lessons. Exactly. Uh, arms, armed struggles at the very heart of revolution. If the problems of the people cannot be redressed because the necessary resources are in the hands of a relatively few families and individuals, it means we're going to have to seize this property. Seizing property has always meant some form of war, some form of armed struggle. If history is our guide, it clearly records that nothing of any great value has ever changed hands without a struggle, or at least a show of or threat of violence. Men simply don't surrender what they think as their privilege and property except by force. History itself is economically motivated class struggle. There is simply no way to compare the society or its historical experience with that of a tiny colonial country like Chile. Allende is not seizing property, his government is buying property. Until the Chilean ruling capitalist class is suppressed, the Chilean revolution is as meaningless as the Swedish experiment. The socialist governments which attempt to coexist with the capitalist economics completely forget the economic motive of human societal social history. Revisionism has given birth to countless socialistic hermaphrodites, always to the detriment of the people's power. Strained, tortured definitions of social existence and organization have trapped people in so many contradictions that most have given up all hope of harnessing the modern industrial state or even understanding it. England before the Tories or between the Tories is a liberal socialist. Military dictatorships clearly totalitarian are ruled by cliques traveling under the designation of revolutionary council, etc. So, 
again, you know, I mean, he's lambasting the European model. He's also putting it to Allende here. Um, something, you know, you do have to remember too at the time. Allende won that popular election. Uh, they didn't really uprise in a violent force. Uh, so he did have the old system to contend with and he didn't even have a majority, right? He did, he did as president what so many, you know, uh, Democrats don't do because they're not actually left. He basically ruled by edict and made made things better, and that's why he was cooed so so quickly. And this, of course, was written right before that coup. Yeah. Uh, no argument has any substance if it conflicts with the objective conditions. The clear, incontrovertible facts. In our case, these facts can be read from the nation's diet dailies. I don't know why I suddenly couldn't read dailies. The two eyes confused <laughs> me. Uh, in the obituary section. Blacks who seriously advocate revolution are killed. Blacks who attack property relations are slated for the graveyard or the prison camp. It's a national cultural tradition. Since these are the facts, it follows that an oppressed class which does not strive to learn to use arms, to acquire arms, only deserves to be treated like slaves. We cannot forget, unless we become bourgeois pacifists or opportunists, that we're living in a class society. There is no way out of the society, and there can be none, except by means of class struggle. In every class society, whether it is based on slavery, serfdom, or at present on wage labor, the oppressing class is armed. That's from, uh, it, it just says Lenin Selected Works. I'm not actually sure which Lenin work it is, but it's from Lenin, yeah. The vanguard cannot stay alive long enough to affect a broad consciousness unless it possesses the latent threat of force. They're going to claim that our clothing projects, the people's bazaars, the people's stores, and decentralized cottage industries are fronts for stolen property. The establishment will claim that the vanguard party is feeding and clothing people with goods stolen from the old enemy culture. They'll claim that we're buying it from the city-state's lumpen who steal everything and they can sell, or that we're ripping it off ourselves. Of course, this will be used to justify an attack upon our political projects and our infrastructure, right? We see this now, you know, there was the whole, especially in Katrina, but really any natural disaster, right? There's there's the whole, like, looters mm-hmm. panic, right? Or anytime there's there's riots or, and, and, and righteous uprising against, say, police brutality. It's, oh my god, the looters, the looters, the looters, right? Um, they were dealing with that now. They had these large structures, or, you know, they, they were doing that more fully, right? They had these large structures where they were, like, actually, you know, doing full on, he talks about the people bazaars, the people's breakfast, stuff like that, and it's, oh, where, where are they getting the resources for that? It couldn't possibly be that they pulled together and organized it, because that would prove the system is bad, that would prove they're, they're capable in pro- solving problems, and of course, they have to demonize the enemy. They want to violently put this this resistance down. And so it has to be, oh, it's stolen. They're just, they're just ripping it off. They're just criminals. Mm-hmm. It's just a black market. Yep. And then um, once that opens, once you open that door, then the whole thing is delegit- it's de- you can delegitimize it, and that's how you do it, and you yeah. do that through PR, and you do that through everything else. Yeah, and that that's how you you can do you know COINTELPRO. It's how you can do uh, the Move Nine bombing and and just regular acts of suppression, the constant police brutality, and get away with it. You know, mm-hmm. um, get people in on on the security state, right? Yep. Um, I'm convinced that any serious organizing of the people oh, must we, carry. We with- skipped the assaults will be justified. Oh. 
Oh, we did. Okay, hold on. Do, 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 do. The assaults will be justified by them in a dozen different ways, whether we establish ourselves in storefronts or in our homes. They will attack us behind the fire ordinance, the sanitation department, the anonymous tip. I, I like how he points out the sanitation department, because that is always a bullshit excuse when they try to shut down any kind of feeding mm-hmm. infrastructure for, for you know homeless people. Yep. Um, the establishment's mercenaries will break in shooting, and all of us who are not killed will go to jail for violating the fire ordinance, resisting arrest, attempting murder, and receiving stolen property, etc., etc. It's as predictable as nightfall. I'm convinced that any serious organizing of people must carry with it from the start a potential threat of revolutionary violence. Without it, the establishment forces will succeed in isolating the political organizer and closing down his project before the people can feel its benefits. Self-determination requires a small, hidden, highly trained army equipped with the very best and most destructive of military weapons and a bodyguard of counter-terrorists. The Vanguard Party distinguishes itself from the service of the people and superimposes itself over the old culture throughout the city-state. Tactics designed to further the development of revolutionary consciousness must be based upon the prevailing state of class and race antagonisms created out of the new relationship. We can be certain that the nucleus of the clandestine army will already exist by then. The government's repressive agencies will also be well infiltrated by blacks and other revolutionary people. Infiltration is the work of the professional revolutionary. Infiltrating the establishment's protective agencies will also tend to neutralize the ruling class's attempt to isolate the black vanguard commune from the larger body of the class structure. All efforts to isolate the vanguard community must be resisted. The black colony must actively invite other revolutionary people to follow their example. We must give refuge to the refugees and eventually work out some means to coordinate our operations with theirs at every level. However, we cannot delay our own preparedness toward a united black revolutionary culture. No one will undertake to aid us unless they sense the power of our movement. I will read that again. No one will undertake to aid us unless they sense the power of our movement. Again, power sways people, right? We saw this in 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is the or there. It is blacks who must pay not only the role of liberating the black colony, but also the leading role in the liberation of the whole city state. To expect that someone else will take full responsibility for our own liberation is suicide. We ask to be patient for another one hundred to one hundred and fifty years. We'll get stuck with long theoretical explanations on consciousness or objective conditions when it's clear that the consciousness will not grow unless there is someone among us willing to feed it. Yep. Consciousness grows in spirals. Growth implies feeding and being fed. We feed consciousness by feeding people, addressing ourselves to their needs, the basic and social needs, working, organizing toward a united national left after the people have created something that they are willing to defend, a wealth of new ideals and an autonomous subsistence infrastructure, then they are ready to be brought into open conflict with the ruling class and its supporters. This conflict must extend to every level of capitalist production and distribution. Consciousness of our power will grow as a result of this mass contact with the ruling forces. There is no question that people must be organized and educated to the benefits of people's government before they can successfully move against their class enemy. However, there seems to be some question as to how seriously we should take ourselves in our work of organizing. When we meet resistance, should we acquiesce, withdraw, wait it out, or intensify Should we meet violent reaction with a more determined violence? The type that puts 80 tanks to flight in Laos? 
In other words, if the fascists don't like what we're doing and attack us through a lynch mob, the police forces and judicial branch of their government, should we relent or should we accept their violent reaction as a natural response to our challenge and organize against it? Every step, every stage towards a unified black commune will meet great violence. This resistance will come in the in some form of violence. It is clear that if we don't learn to overcome all resistance, no forward movement will be made. Discovering ways of meeting and overcoming resistance, demonstrating to ourselves that we can, is a fundamental antecedent to the growth of a revolutionary consciousness, because we'll be under attack every step of the way. 100 years ago, it would have been the same. 100 years from today, it will be the same. We'll take our mule and 40 acres now, collectivize them, defend them, invite other revolutionary people to follow our example, make allies, then leap to destroy the fascist pseudo-mass culture from within. So, again, this was essentially three long paragraphs with the message of don't wait for the perfect day, right? It's not just going to come along when, when you least expect it. You have to create that. Mm-hmm. As the people move into more significant areas of anti-establishment projects, they will be hurled violently into contact with the defenders of the present state of property relations at the level of production, distribution, and property rights in general. Then we will discover that their power and their new fighting style actually depend on the greater potential for violence. The C's size, uh, that's, yes, that's the word size, and complexity of a thing are not an index of its strength. This struck me forcefully one evening as I flipped through one of the nation's news weeklies and spotted a photograph of a huge self-propelled 155-millimeter cannon lying on its side, its barrel spiked forever. A man on foot, armed with a rocket that weighed less than four pounds, had destroyed it. The larger and more complex the city-state, the more it is dependent upon all related parts. The cannon was hit at its base, in the moving parts of the treads, which were destroyed and the death machine fell of its own weight. How can the super-technological state operate without electricity or power, without water, transport, communications, sewage systems, utilities? None of these can be protected. Their sheer size alone makes it impossible. How can the establishment protect an electrical supply and the thousands of transformers, etc.? Effective positioning of the guards is militarily impossible. A man every 25 feet up and down the million miles of line can't protect it. It would also break the class that paid for the protection. Since a break at any one point renders powerless huge sections of the area served. The cost of supporting the guards would bankrupt any nation. The guerrillas would simply overwhelm the guardians point by point. I think this is the essence of the poor man's war, the essence of the guerrilla strategy, the protracted war of the worker bees. The only valid form of union activity is seizure of union leadership by any means necessary. We must call strikes to enforce our demands on capital. To enforce the strike, we must stop the plant's power source. Standing in the gateway with a place, placard, and a pamphlet alone will not dull a worker's short-term interest in wage slavery. The very first impulse is to eat. With right-wing union leadership gone and the black worker revolutionized through his contact with the black commune, even the fascists who exist without any sense of community or class consciousness can possibly be won over or at least rendered neutral. Either way, they won't be able to break strikes with the power lines down. The power of our military strategy sitting behind, beside our political infrastructure depends on constant attack, 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 improvisation, aggression. An attack on property, that utilities that feed the superstate in direct and direct attacks at the productive point and distribution system. As I stated, the Western military experts admit that the mechanized establishment guard must outnumber the attacking worker by 10 to 1. What they can't afford to admit is that even with this numerical superiority, they cannot win. 
They're learning this in every theater of combat. In a class war, they could never even raise a 10 to 1 numerical superiority. Even if they succeed in employing the degenerate elements of the lower class, created by a long history of counterpositive mobilization of reactionary mass society, as mercenaries or vigilantes in the early stages, the advantage is still ours. At 10 to 1, we still enjoy a strategic military superiority if we are attacking, because they must defend so many different points vital to the order and continuity of their life support system. All at the same time. The points to be protected will always outnumber the units who are available to protect them. The super technological city-state has grown so complex that it is completely dependent upon its thousands of related parts. It has grown so large that no force can be fielded to protect all its vital parts. The essence of the guerrilla technique is to cripple and finally stop the life support system of the enemy class or state. The advantage of the anti-establishment force can be best understood by picturing the need for the establishment forces to spread themselves thin in the vain attempt to protect the mechanical base of their source of power, which of course works out to be the various forms of productive and non-productive property. The mobile have-not, the attacker, can concentrate his forces, even though initially they are numerically inferior, to actually outnumber and overwhelm the thinned-out forces of the establishment by selecting at one or two points by attacking at one or two points at a time. In Mao's Selected Works, Volume well, 2... Before, before we jump to Mao, huh? before we jump to Mao, that's, that's an important point, right? You know, if they have five soldiers, 500 soldiers to your, you know, 20, right? But you only need a certain mile, and they have to, to defend a thousand miles. They've got a soldier per every two miles. They're, they're screwed, right? I mean, it, they have, a, they have a, a lot to defend. And on top of that, they're very dependent on a lot of technology and infrastructure to manage that, that amount of people. You know, everything he named is still true, but also, like, obviously the internet and, you know, mobile phone um, communication is added on to that now. Yeah. In Mao's Selected Works, Volume 2, he speaks of ingenuity and mobility as necessary qualities of any guerrilla operation. The ancients said ingenuity and varying tactics depends on mother wit. This ingenuity, which is what we mean by flexibility, is the contribution of the intelligent commander. Flexibility does not mean recklessness. Recklessness must be rejected. Flexibility consists in the intelligent commander's ability to take timely and appropriate measures on the basis of objective conditions after judging the hour and sizing up the situation. The situation includes the enemy's situation, our situation, and the terrain. And this flexibility is ingenuity in varying tactics. On the basis of this ingenuity, we can win more victories and quick decision offensive warfare on exterior lines, change the balance of forces in our favor, gain the initiative over the enemy, and overwhelm and crush him so that the final victory will be ours. If there are 20 points in the city-state to be protected and 10 units of protection, clearly an attacking force of one could destroy 10 of the 20 without opposition. The 10 points that remain guarded by the 10 units of protection must now meet the attacker on a one-to-one basis. The term attack explicitly means first strike, and first strike translates into advantage. Total repression and genocide are not possible if we organize ourselves for survival first. If we first construct the commune, a sense of community, a common interest of class, the objective... I I do like how what he was talking about spreading them too thin, and I gave the 500, you know, people in the several miles example and I, I didn't even think where i got that analogy and then he just said it it was like oh yeah i got it from you george i should have just shut up and let the author speak like we always do the objective conditions are present 
to postpone our liberation with the excuse that the people aren't ready is to underestimate them. In effect, it's like saying they don't have the mentality to act in their defense. The repeating shotgun is the deadliest weapon in the world for close-range urban fighting. They are simple to make, maintain, and use. Anyone can be effective with the scattergun. One simply points and squeezes the trigger. If the thing to be shot is moving, follow through with your swing. Tanks are obsolete. They can be rendered harmless with a dollar's worth of grenade propelled from the muzzle of the shotgun by a blank cartridge. Then, as a tank moves down any city street, it has placed itself in a defile. On a cost-effectiveness basis, the most destructive weapon is the gasoline bomb. Enough gasoline, soap shavings, and potassium chlorate could flip a tank over on its side or thrown from the windows of our defiles. The gasoline bomb could incinerate the largest army. We can only be repressed if we stop thinking and stop fighting. We can only be repressed if we stop thinking and stop fighting. I didn't know if he meant start fighting mm-hmm. there. I don't know. It was, it was weird. Uh, people who refuse to stop fighting can never be repressed. They either win or they die, which is more attractive than losing and dying. Their primary, the primacy of politics remains, but we must now be prepared for armed confrontation. By no stretch of the imagination can we hope to overthrow so determined an enemy without force. We will win, George. And that is the first section of blood in my eye yes which has been so long i forget what the section was titled but i'm scrolling up david now. is scrolling up i am scrolling like a man is scrolling not trust david fervently it is just called blood in my eye well section, that was so anticlimactic <laughs> roll credits roll, he said the he title, said the title the right at the start it was oh it was so kind um definitely a section heavy on uh heavy on the nitty-gritty details of guerrilla warfare yeah well again you know um and and thankfully the the sections are going to be a lot shorter by the way this is kind of like um what was the one we did before uh black reconstruction Um, wretched of the earth thank you oh my goodness uh, Wretched of the Earth was the same way, right? The Wretched of the Earth, the first chapter was the longest. It seemed to be a lot of the main crux of it. And it was the one that constantly talked about the necessity of violence, right? Mm-hmm. You got a lot of the same structure here. You know, that was, what, like 90 of the 150 pages yeah. um, or something like that. Yeah. So, you know, that was an enormous chunk of the book, and it was devoted heavily heavily to guerrilla warfare what makes urban guerrilla warfare separate from other forms of guerrilla warfare the necessity the way it fits the american project the flamethrower and of course you know jonathan's flamethrower and all the intricacies right you know someone being from an oppressed class doesn't automatically make them someone who radicalize mm-hmm. right um the the different class structures based around race um and the fact that that doesn't rule out every you know poor white person or you know everyone that that's you know not black and in other ethnic minorities but the like his specific black nationalism shouldn't be dependent on white people um or people of other you know ethnic oppressed minorities Right. That's, you know, I mean, Hispanic people should team up and should do it. White people should team up and should do it. Everybody should work together on this in solidarity and solidarity is important. But you're going to a group, you know, liberation is going to have to to center that group if they're in the most oppressed group. Right. Yeah. Yep. It was a it was a dandy of a chapter, but we will now be moving on to chapter two, the American mind. Frankenstein's need for a servant was an expression of his diseased ego, so he created a demented, ugly creature, pathologically strong and huge. Dear Greg, 
who's Greg, a friend of the author. Greg is a friend of the author. <laughs> very specific. Very specific. Very, very detailed. Uh, the breakdown of establishment conditioning usually occurs first at the university level. Students refuse to accept the lie that our exploitation of the world's people is actually beneficial to them. They begin to refuse their share of the spoils. Huey Newton and Bobby Seale left the campus to, perform, to form the Black Panther Party. The Students for a Democratic Society gave birth to the Weathermen. The rise of sociopolitical institutions to their present form and complexity was not really the, of chance, the result of chance. The corporation, the university, the unions, the mass media, the foundations, the associations, the courts, the prisons, the army, police, national and international, uniformed and disguised, from their beginnings were formulated as enforcers of state centralism. An examination focused on the history of all the major sociopolitical institutions of the United States, a study in the genetics of hierarchy, would certainly uncover the totally economic motive underlying the foundations of these institutions. For my purposes, I would broadly divide the major sociopolitical institutions into two classes, one designed by the state to move people into certain actions, and the other to discourage, curtail, or completely deny certain other actions. The unintelligible vastness of these institutions makes it seem impossible for them that they could be owned and operated by a relatively small number of men. But the truth of this can be demonstrated by documented evidence and irrefutable case studies. The mo- as always, yep. as always, when looking at evidence-based materialist history pushed by communists, it sounds insane, except you look at the paper trail and it's actually very, very true. Yep. The modern industrial corporative, corporative city-based state could never function at all without hierarchical control and an acceptance of the, by the people of the controlling hierarchy. Prior conditioning, of course, the effects of ubiquitous self-negation inbred since childhood, of course, again, certainly the pervasive nihilism of capitalist men, but these are simply effects. Western civilization is dying because it's tied into an economic system that was decadent a hundred years ago. The system was certainly the calculated creation of a specific minority class. The rise of the manufacturing class was not spontaneous. It is perpetuated beyond the stage of decadence in spite of its fits of outrageous disorder. Its seemingly remarkable ability to return from crisis is not proof of natural durability. Rather, it is proof of a destructive will to power at any cost. Yeah, I mean, that that's a good thing, too, to, to point out, because there are a lot of people that would use that, you know, it, it always bounces back, the market always bounces back, blah, 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 right? But the market also o- always crashes. The fact that it does that is a bad sign. Frankenstein's need for a servant was an expression of his diseased ego, so he created a huge, pathologically strong, demented, ugly creature. He censored the beast's activity by making him underintelligent. He erected institutions flexible enough to keep the giant working, but rigid enough to forestall any growth of his mental faculties. A brain was grudgingly attached to the beast to provide a way for it to act. The beast worked and fought the enemies of his creator. The beast was content to watch the creator flourish. He lived through his creator, and when he finally saw himself as he was, he went mad. The corporation, the foundation, the association, the mass media, the state-controlled unions, the universities and primary schools are all designed to move people into very specifically pre-ordered and monitored actions. The actual monitoring is done by a broader segment of the stratified slave state, but the pre-ordering is done by the one-tenth of one percent, the ruling class and governing elite of the corporative arrangement. 
The careful observer can see immediately how the guiding instructions are held together by red tape and rubber bands so that they can be very flexible when necessary. The corporation's flea market and the mass media are relatively new techniques of control, as are the institutional foundations and most of the associations. The foundations, whether family or corporate, are tax-exempt, financial and mechanisms ostensibly established for altruistic influences in the fields of art and culture generally. They subsidize scientific research, higher education, educational TV, etc. The Rockefellers alone control 13 such foundations, through which they also control the oil holdings of 90 to 100 nations in the third world countries, mainly holding variously estimated in value from 10 to $14 billion. Similar foundations are controlled by the Fords, Kellogg's, and Carnegie's. Gates, I will add in for for good measure. Yeah, um, Clintons and mm-hmm. and Koch brothers, and you know all, all of the like, right. When the international business interests of these family financial institutions are threatened, the tax supported international police are activated. After the CIA fails, the special forces are called upon. When necessary, the Marine Corps and infantry intervene. Comrade George. Yeah, so again, that section was much, much shorter, uh, but it was very simple and straightforward, and being titled The American Mind, it was fitting because it it felt almost like a really, it was like I was reading a summarized inventing reality, Yeah, right? Um, But it just simply, you know, pointed out this is all, it's all a monopoly, right? We're in monopoly capitalism, and that's how monopoly works. You know, the, uh, the aristocracy class is just, billionaires that's all it is right billionaires and and millionaires who you know sit at the throne as well right um through you know having a lot of of connections with with other billionaires um and so when you see that you know pretty plainly it's like okay you know it, it sounds insane but there's a few people and they're looking out for their interests we see this with every decision we're talking about the the roe v wade stuff now they they couldn't wait to get weapons over to ukraine so that you know the the ceos of and and ceos of the banks invested in uh boeing and lockheed martin and and all the like can can profit but they can't figure out baby formula they can't Pay, pay us out to, you know, stay home and, and actually have proper COVID testing equipment as cases have spiked to in the 20% in New York and California and other states again. You know, this is something they, they basically throw in your face. They don't care about you because they're, they just have a small nucleus they're serving. You know, the parties pick the people in the front for you and it doesn't really matter who gets elected out of the party or between the parties. The policies come out the same. Moving on to our next section, we are getting into American justice. For their freedom to prey on the world's people, whatever the cost in blood. Dear Greg, well, back to Greg. In order for capitalism to continue to rule, any action that threatens the right of a few individuals to own and control public property must be prohibited and curtailed, whatever the cost and resources. The international wing of the repressive institution has spent one, ha- one and a one half trillion dollars since World War II, whatever the cost in blood. My lie, Augusta, Georgia, Kent State, the Panther Trials, the frame up of Angela Davis. The national repressive institutions, police, National Guard, Army, etc., are no less determined. The mayors that curse the rioters and the looters, Mayor Daly of Chicago, Mayor Lightfoot of Chicago, just update Mayor of Chicago. <laughs> I was Chi- going to say. Just update yeah. Mayor of Chicago and you're it fine. Just, just, just insert current Mayor of Chicago. 
Yeah. New Has York, or- same way. L.A., mm-hmm. you know. Mayor Daley of Chicago has ordered them summarily executed in the streets. Ignore the fact that their bosses have looted the world. I refuse to make any argument with statistics compiled by the institutions and associations that I indict. Yet it is true that even official figures prove the case against capitalism. Almost The Federal Bureau of Investigation compiles and indexes almost all information on crime in the United States. I have the figures as it states them right here. Vital statistics, FBI crime report, property crimes... 87% of the total in 1969, 28% of those crimes occurring in the ghetto. Since 1960, the number of men and women prisoners in state and federal penitentiaries has fluctuated slightly around the quarter million mark. These statistics conceal the living reality. This is my 11th year of being shoveled into every major prison in the major, major, most populous state in the nation and the largest prison system in the world. What I have seen in these 11 years is the living situation. The experience is quite different from the columns of figures neatly arranged to give the impression of well-studied, detached, scientific, and calculated analysis. Hidden are the facts that at each institution I've been in, 30 to sometimes 40% of those held are black, and every one of the many thousands I've encountered was from the working or lumpen proletariat class. There may be a few exceptions, but I simply have not met any of them in my 11 years. Where I am confined now is San Quentin Prison, California, awaiting trial for two alleged crimes, conviction on either of which would subject my lungs to the poison gas treatment. There are 17 cells in what is euphemistically called the Adjustment Center, but is far more accurately known as the Hole. The AC in San Quentin is is San Quentin's triple maximum security, and all of these cells are filled, 11 of them with black men, every one of them without exception from the working class. I've been arrested, interrogated, and investigated more times than I care to count. I learned ten times more about that pro- the process than most than the most expert single groups of inquisitors. From the first moment I was brought into this scenario, I attempt to establish control over the exchanges that will take place between myself and my captors. Depending on the situation, one learns to feign either indignation, surprise, idiocy, or fear. At times, the peasant philosopher face will work. I don't think I'm an exception at all, as most blacks learn by age 15 how to handle the cretins who hire out as guns for the privileged. There is only one type of inquisitional situation that I personally cannot control, the sessions that begin with violence. In those cases, guile fails, and blacks learn to fight multiple opponents while handcuffed or at least learn how to protect the groin area. I simply have never managed to develop a technique against nine armed men who are fascinated with damaging my private parts. Yeah, um... Again, he is not shy about, and, and that's what he's saying. You know, it's not just the numbers, it's the conditions. You know, we have the largest prison population in the world, not just per capita, uh, which, you know, of course follows with other Western nations, uh, the top 10 list is all Western nations and per capita, but also by gross. So even the two more popular nations, China and India, have a smaller and and they have like almost triple our population and they have a smaller total prison population than we do but then you look at the conditions you know people people are kept without soap without feminine hygiene um without health care including women in prisons giving birth um people are are you know basically thrown into fights with each other people are mauled and beaten up in in prison people are are raped they're giving you know food with maggots they're they're put in in uh, um, isolation in, um, I can't think of what is the torture thing when you're in total isolation. Um, solitary confinement. Solitary confinement. They're put into solitary confinement. You know, I mean, just just unbelievably 
grotesque conditions where even a small number would be unacceptable, right? The quality of of the situation is, is much more damning than the quantity, and yet the fact that the quantity just floors the rest of the world is incredibly damning. So he's saying, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and point out the charts. I can tell you how it is firsthand, and it's the quality of it that's truly disgusting. Yep. And that is as good a place as any to leave it for this week. We will pick up on page 99 next week. We are, whoo, we, we made some, we made some flying today. Mm-hmm. I might be, I might be a wreck. Now, I know there were a couple insert pages there, but we started on page 71 and we made it to page 99, gang. <laughs> that, that doesn't happen all that often. That's, that's. We went through, we went through a whole chapter and dipped into two more, Nathan. We, we were just, just going nuts. I mean, we are, we are crushing uh so that being said this has been mark's madness pod we read books there are a number of different ways you can reach out to us if you would like to do so first of which is through email our email address is mark's madness pod at gmail.com if you want to hit us up on twitter we are at mark's madness pod on twitter uh and if you are on our twitter and go to our uh, profile you will find a link to our discord server the mark's madness pod discord where we hang out and play video games and and talk about our day and and make sure that people have a community of like-minded individuals and there's also a reading group i forgot to talk about reading group last week uh reading group uh i believe is getting ready to start uh the selected works of mao that vj prashad uh recently released the edited works of mao um, that, that he took care of. So I believe that is what they are working on next. If you are interested and want to drop in, by all means. Uh, David, I think it's time for a disclaimer. Yeah. So, of course, um, speaking of reading groups and, and, and what we do here, uh, Nathan came up to me one day uh, when he first wanted to read Capital and was like, hey, you've read this before. You should read Theory and History in a group. Why don't we read this together and make sure we're, you know, bouncing it off each other and getting getting what we should out of it. And, you know, from the beginning, we were like, well, we know how to record things and there's only two of us and that's a pretty small reading group. Maybe we should record it and we can see if we can do something with it. And lo and behold, we did. And now you guys are all here with us. We're, we're so excited to have you. And ever since the beginning, the vision was, hopefully, whatever group, whatever party you're out there organizing in, you guys are reading these books along with us. And we can be another voice, another source of input, another contribution to that reading group. Uh, give you another chance to, to review over things, uh, give you a little more background, give you another perspective, whatever it is. Um, let's say your group's not doing that. They're doing something shorter, something more applicable to a project they're on. Uh, hopefully, we can be that reading group if you're reading these works on your own. We can make sure you get all of those benefits. And let's say you're not reading on your own, and it's either something like this, where we're kind of going word for word, like an enhanced ebook, or the ones that we summarize more. Whatever it is, we can do to make these works more accessible to you, because we want these works out there guiding your actions. Uh, when these works are put into revolutionary action, any form of revolutionary organizing, uh, that's a phenomenon called praxis. Praxis, of course, can't exist without theory, and theory is completely useless without praxis. They go hand in hand; they are tied at the hip. Amen. As always, that being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name is David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.